Hello and welcome to the new Indoor Environments Global Research to Action Program. Uh, I'm Bob Krell. I'm the publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and I'm uh, co-hosting the show along with uh, the president and current president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, Don Weeks, coming yes. to you live from Ottawa. Hi, Don. Yes, all the way overseas in Ottawa. <laughs> all the way overseas. Um, so anyway, this is uh, this is our, our first inaugural broadcast. So thank you for joining us. This will be a monthly program. Um, interestingly, this is a uh, joint collaborative collaborative project between ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Uh, both organizations have gotten together to uh, create this broadcast, uh, and we'll be bringing it to you every month. So this is a, this is the uh, first of those efforts. So I, I guess the, my first question, Don, is you know, let's uh, let, let's talk in terms of how this came about. You know, I know this was a uh, it's kind kind of a new concept for a program. It is uh, the two organizations who were uh, aware of each other and wanted to work on some something together. So we formed a um, memorandum of understanding, which actually is relatively new. We did that in April with the intent that one of the first things that we would do jointly would be this this uh, podcast. And um, and the purpose of it is to is to basically take the um, research section uh, part of, of uh, indoor air quality and uh, to uh, present that to the practice to, to so that actions can be taken based on good research and then good science. And, and this, as you mentioned, is the first of that. This one is sponsored by ISIAC uh, and the one that we'll spend, uh, we will ch do in um, late July will be the first one by IQGA. So I'm looking forward to having this broadcast go forward. I mean, and this certainly is a little bit of a new tack, I think, for, for both organizations, right? Because mm -hmm. it, we're bringing, you know, our intent here is to bring uh, academia and research uh, and, and introduce a lot of the great work that's going on globally uh, to the entire uh, indoor environmental community uh, worldwide. So, yes, and, and that's 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 true. So between the two organizations, uh, we have members, both of us, in a variety of different places in the world, uh, probably as much as 45 different nations. So this is really truly a global uh, commitment from both organizations to reach out to people who are uh, working on in the indoor air quality field in any part of the world. So um, today, uh, our you know inaugural episode, we have uh, two guests coming up uh, coming to us uh, uh, from uh, Denmark and from the Netherlands, right? Um, um, joining us today will be Paul Wargaki. He'll be our first guest, and uh, followed by uh, Fraukia Van Dijen, um coming to us from the Netherlands. Um, so our uh, we have the uh, comment area in the uh, global community for those of you who are watching the show live right now uh you're more than welcome to uh post some comments and we will try to entertain those throughout the course of the show as well so i guess without further ado um let's bring in our first guest and i'll let you do the intro don entry there. okay so um Al, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you very much. And thank you for an invitation to this uh, new initiative. Uh, I hope it will be very successful. It's a new way of how we can uh, introduce uh, indoor environment uh, and bring it uh, to the um, 
many people, you know, we now all are very much interested in about uh, in uh, our indoor environment because of the pandemic, but uh, we should be um, interested uh, independently of the pandemic as well. So I think that this will be a one way of um, communicating an importance of that. I'm pleased to be here because of several reasons. Uh, one is that uh, I was the president of the uh, ECAC and uh, I also participated in the first discussion when the Global Alliance was formed. Uh, I remember we were sitting with Don and a few other people um, on the initiative of uh, uh, Professor Bill Banflett, at that time the president of uh, ASHRA. Uh, to initiate some sort of a global alliance that will bring together, you know, societies that uh, deal with the um, indoor environment. And uh, uh, this is an initiative that brings ECIAC and Global Alliance uh, in the form of uh, some sort of a program, uh, not webinar, uh, but uh, some sort of a program in which we can introduce different problems related to indoor environment and some solutions as well, hopefully. Yeah, that's uh, that's the intent, and uh, perhaps you could uh, let us know how did you become interested in indoor air quality? <laughs> well, my life is full of uh, of uh, you know unplanned uh, events, so that was not planned event actually. And I don't want to take much time. Is uh, I graduated from Warsaw University of Technology and. Uh, Towards the end of my uh, studies, I came to Denmark and I met a group here where I work now and uh, particularly Professor Fanga at that time. And uh, I got uh, interested in this. Uh, it was completely new for me. And um, so I decided to come back. I came back a few years later, uh, started my PhD here and then I completed it and the center was formed here, International Center for Indoor Environment and Energy. I got my first, you know, employment uh, here and then so I continued. Um, but uh, certainly it was uh, the curiosity of how uh, and how we, uh, actually it was a learning process. I started with a very simple uh, studies on the effects of fragrances on, um, how they can mask, uh, you know, uh, pollutants in the air. But then, the, then, this led to another interest in, uh, you know, how we perceive our quality. Then led to another interest in how that relates to our symptomatology, and then how it relates to how we work and learn. So that's, you know, it's the constant process of. Um, Exploring new, and this is the most uh, interesting in it, is that uh, basically we do all the time something new and uh, make small steps to, to learn more about different uh, aspects of the environment. This is so attractive. So I remember I, you gave me some of your cited papers, and, and two of them that you uh, co-authored were on sick building syndrome symptoms and productivity. Can you tell us what were the conclusions of those papers? When when was it that I gave you those papers? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, we we are speaking about uh, schools, right? Uh, uh, yeah, we will be talking about school. schools. Uh, sure. If you, right. If you, um, so what we did is um, actually we did more than that, but I will start with those two papers which are published. Uh, we have also some report that we recently published in Denmark only. 
and probably we will uh, make it. Uh, I, I made it uh, available also over the uh, LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. But uh, nevertheless, uh, our interest was to identify what are the effects of um, improved thermal environment and indoor air quality in classrooms on a um, learning of of uh, of pupils uh, in elementary and secondary schools. And what we uh, decided to do was to basically collect all the information that was available in published in the literature. Mind that 20 years ago, when we were publishing uh, the first study, one of the first study on effects of indoor air quality on learning of children, <clears throat> Uh, that was sponsored by ASHA at that time, um, there was very few papers available on that issue. Most of the papers were coming from Professor Wyon and the work that he did in Sweden, mainly on the thermal environment and noise uh, and the effects on children. <clears throat> and uh, in the last 20 years, there have been many new publications, uh, important publications that systematically, uh, it's a systematic effects they show that you know, by improving indoor air quality, increasing ventilation in classrooms. Um, uh, ventilation here is a marker of improved air, uh, indoor air quality. And also by avoiding elevated temperatures and thermal stress uh, or discomfort uh, among the children in classrooms, you will, imp uh, you will um, promote learning. Or I would rather say you will reduce the factors that disturb your learning. Because, of course, learning is a complicated process and there are several factors that influence it. And there are also several factors that disturb it. I mean, the noise that is disturbing can disturb your uh, learning and how quickly you learn. The same happens with the air quality and um, the same happens with the uh, elevated temperatures or the uh, thermal discomfort. So. By avoiding those, you will uh, basically create an environment that is conducive to learning for children. And those effects are um, not uh, negligible. I mean, we're talking about the effects of uh, up to 20%. I mean, two, two cipher effects uh, for both. Uh, so, and they, as I said, this, the studies are systematic, so meaning, we are seeing this in different continents, different groups, you know, and so on and so on. And uh, they are repeatable. And we see it uh, across uh, different types of measures of learning. We see it for the simple tasks that uh, measure some cognitive skills to, you know, to results of the exams of uh, um, uh, what is called the uh, end exams, right? And uh, characters and, uh, and the of your characters. And you're seeing this globally, Powell, as far as far as your research, this is uh, um, or, or are there certain areas uh, around the world where there's there's more issues? I mean, uh, I'm assuming that it has some of this has bearing on the building, the, the age of the building stock, the, the different uh, educational institutions, you know, older buildings. Well, it's very difficult to compare, of course. But uh, yeah. I mean, interestingly, you have different, you know, countries, you know, Denmark, for example, where we run the study. I mean, Denmark is more like, you know, very similar from the socio-economic aspects, uh, whereas there could be some different, bigger difference, for example, in the United States and other countries. Uh, and those will be, of course, affecting the um, more uh, the children, which probably have um, 
are my, I would call it less able to to learn and uh, to to call it mildly. So, but I I I would say we see it across you know the, the different countries the same way. Of course, there are very few studies from the countries in which you know which are very poor. Uh, there are few studies maybe from African countries where they have uh, completely different problems. So it, it's, these are not the same problems as we have here in the developed part of the world. So that, that is the difference there, of course. But uh, in that part of the world, we see more or less the same problems. Well, one of the, one of the studies that interests me was this uh, one that you did about reducing classroom temperatures in tropical environments which improved the performance of elementary school pupils. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, study and, and what it was its conclusions? All right, I mean, that, that have been, uh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, for the tropical, I mean, still, even for the tropical stu uh, students, uh, you, you know, the, the most important is to avoid the elevated, uh, um, temperatures and here what we see really and we have more and more evidence that the the, the effects here of the uh, thermal environment are much more complicated than uh, we believe they are and they are not only associated with the uh, thermal discomfort or thermal stress you would call it but also associated with the temperatures and the activation of our physiological response because of elevated temperatures. Of course, we need to more understand how the um, adaptation to the uh, thermal environment, where we, if we live in the tropical climate on or moderate uh, or temperate climates, whether it, how it will affect, but that there will be effects. And even we see, you know, the students uh, who are living in the subtropical climates, they will be affected by elevated temperatures. So they, they will not be tolerating, you know, 28, 30 degrees. That would not be um, um, acceptable for them. Um, so so that that is the global phenomenon is that, you know, you go from one climate to another and you see repeatable results here for children. So this is what, um, what is really uh, interesting. Um, of course, the solutions should be properly um devised for the different climates and of course opportunities that there are and of course the funding that is available there but uh, uh, they all need help uh, or <laughs> not help but they all need the environment that will not uh, disturb their uh, develop developing process i'm i'm talking only about the aspects of learning but there could be other aspects that we really need to look at as well and this is their health. I mean, we have to remember that for many children, this is the most important part of their life where they are still developing their physiological responses. And especially for the younger children, those in the grades from zero to three or three to five, remember that they are developing the skills on how to learn more in the future. And if this is not properly developed at that time, because the environment is creating, you know, some, creating some handicap for them. That may have consequences, significant consequences uh, for them in their future life. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that, was, that gives us a lot to think about in terms of uh, <laughs> thank you. this, this thank area. Thank you for having me. We'll be back. All right. We'll talk to you in a little bit. So our next guest. 
is uh, Fraukia Van Dekian. Do you want to do the introductions, uh, Bob? Uh, you know, um, I, I will let you take this one. Okay. <laughs> We're live. I didn't have it queued up for me. So. <laughs> live television. All right. So um, Fraukia is, is a, a, works in a consultant company, consultancy in the Netherlands that specializes in indoor environment and healthy buildings. So um, she, she has schools and nurseries, and um, I wanted to bring her on to talk about that and to provide us with some information about these types of surveys. What do you, what type of, what do you, what can you tell us about the indoor air investigations you, that you do at schools? Well, uh, we do two types of projects in in schools. Mainly, um, one is uh, surveys in schools where they have problems with the indoor climate and the other uh, big group of projects is uh, investigations or uh, second opinions on uh, building plans uh, so we're checking the design of new uh, buildings or buildings that uh, uh, are going to be renovated and uh, check them if uh, if there are some some errors we can take out before the school has been built so are you conducting indoor air quality sampling at these schools? Well, not necessarily. Um, in schools where they have problems with the indoor climate, we, uh, we generally start uh, with um, a survey uh, in order to, to, um, to get uh, the, the, the problems uh, clear, which the, the people uh, suffer from. Um, and then the next step, we go into the building itself and we do investigations over there. Um, we check the buildings, we, uh, we check uh, sort of building physics, uh, HVAC systems. Um, we look, take a look at uh, uh, the, the workplaces itself. How are they used? Uh, how is the interior design? Um, are there uh, risk factors within the, the the whole design of the building um, and uh, substantially we measure uh, we can do measurements to uh, to get more into detail uh, and to substantiate uh, uh, our findings from the risk factor approach I uh, understand that you have some slides that you have given us. With you, maybe you could give us some description of what these slides are showing. Bob, if you could cue those up. Yeah. Well, this shows that um, it's not always necessary uh, to do measurements in buildings. And uh, using your eyes uh, or your nose or uh, whatever, it, it, um, it can be useful to... to um, to see what is wrong in the building and uh, doing, for example, CO2 measurements, it doesn't say every, uh, uh, doesn't say anything at all uh, in these cases. Um, what you see on this picture, uh, it's um, the inside of a ventilation uh, system. Uh, you see a filter, which hasn't been replaced for many, many years, uh, as you can see. And in this school, they actually didn't know that they had a ventilation system. They just uh, heard a noise from uh, a gray uh, iron thing somewhere fixed on a ceiling. And yeah, it was making noise, but there was no air replacement uh, by this, uh, this installation. 
and it's quite clear yeah you can see that uh, it was all stuck yeah it certainly looks damaged that's for sure yeah it had been there for a long long time yeah this is also uh, a picture i'm often showing in presentations um this is uh, actually uh, an air inlet uh, duct which is in the in the floor and as you can see after i think 30 years uh 40 years maybe uh lots of rubbish uh came into this uh duct and you can imagine that the indoor air quality is uh, influenced by the all the rubbish in there i imagine the one solution obviously is to do a little bit more duct cleaning than they've done in the past <laughs> yeah sure Well, it's not always about uh, old buildings. This is a brand new building. This is uh, the air handling unit, which has been used as a storage room for the, the builders. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. What are, what are some of those devices? It looks like meters of some sort. Yeah, and drills and that kind of stuff. All kinds of tools. Uh. Uh, I'm sure that has an effect on, on the indoor quality, to say the least. Yeah, uh, if you want to um, have a clean commissioning, mm -hmm. uh, this shouldn't be the case. Um, this is also a new building. And uh, what you can see here, it's just the bottom of an air handling unit, uh, which has been, um, it became dirty, some corrosion on the bottom. Um, it, probably gets uh, wet every now and then uh, and well filters are laying on the bottom so uh, probably there will be some mold growth in the uh, in the filters and um, okay this is uh, also not uh, beneficial for the indoor air quality and these in are the all these are all taken in schools uh, in, in uh, the Netherlands yes yeah so in schools yeah well, and uh, one other thing we're always taking a closer look at, um, it's the, the cleanliness of ducts. As you know, uh, probably um, the complaints of uh, dry, dryness of air, it's uh, not about the relative humidity of, uh, in the building, but it's mainly uh, uh, caused by uh, dust and dirt in the air. So that's why we always check the, the internal uh, part of the, the ducts uh, of the air inlets. And well, as you can see, we, we love to write our name. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> it's written BBA indoors, um, inside. Good data we like as well. to put some graffiti uh, within the ducts, but it makes clear that uh, it, this obviously is not clean. What I find fascinating, uh, uh, I've been involved uh, in my career a lot with the HVAC hygiene uh, issues in, in North America, the United States primarily, and it, and we found similar circumstances in you know the, the public school buildings. Um, but I was under the false impression, I guess, that in places like the Netherlands and uh, and in Scandinavia and and actually a lot of the EU that uh, the hygiene was kept a lot better in the HVAC. So that's not the case, I take it. N not at all. Maybe. Wow. <laughs> I still hope, uh, we still think that Scandinavia is much better than the Netherlands, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of the world. But uh, well, in, in, I can uh, tell you in the, in the Netherlands, like I showed, this is more uh, like a rule. 
in in all school buildings. Yeah, we should work on it. So what are we looking at here? Yeah, um, I thought it's all the other pictures uh, were showing indoor air quality issues, but it's not only about uh, indoor air quality, also temperature. You can uh, sometimes uh, visualize. As you can see here, uh, it's a radiator, uh, convective heating. And uh, this is in a school as well. Uh, lots of books are put on uh, this uh, radiator. And well, as you probably know, um, the heat won't come out. So in this classroom, uh, indeed, it was too cold. Uh, no well, surprise indeed. there, I guess. If you, if you cover up the radiator, you're not gonna get much heat. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And this is what we often see. So we don't always need to do measurements. Pictures like these um, are sometimes are more clear. And the, the previous picture about uh, the inside of the of the duct, the dirty duct. Um, yeah, you don't have to measure how much dust and dirt is in there. I think uh, a picture like that is more clear for the, the users of the building uh, and, and to convince uh, people to to clean uh, the ducts. A picture like this, well, uh, clean up, <laughs> make uh, make space, yeah. Well, this picture, it's. Um, it, it, I think it needs some more explanation. This is a school building, also quite new, and but they only had uh, one window sling uh, at uh, in in each um, classroom. Uh, you had to take it off and move to the next window. And because it's loose, they got lost. Uh, in the beginning, there was one uh, sling per classroom, and now uh, there's one sling per corridor, something like that. So if you want to open your windows, you first need to uh, find such a sling. Yeah. That, that's problematic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, most school buildings, older school buildings in the Netherlands, they don't have cooling. So this is your cooling. You cannot, uh, it, it, you don't have cooling if uh, you cannot open your windows. No, there's not much in the way of natural ventilation if you can't open the windows. Yeah, this school building had mechanical ventilation, but uh, they were lucky. But uh, we see these kind of situations in schools where they have only uh, natural ventilation as well. Yeah. And I, I noted that you, you that in one of your uh, presentations, you stated that 80% of Dutch schools had insufficient ventilation. Can you tell us why that is the case? Um, well, until late 90s, I think uh, schools in the Netherlands were built with uh, natural ventilation systems. So we only have windows that can be opened. Um, if you do not open your windows, because of draft or uh, outdoor noise, you do not have ventilation. So um, it's mainly a practical problem or a, a comfort problem. Uh, we do not have ventilation. Most schools have enough windows, but um, they cannot be used in practice. Uh, since the, the, the 90s, I think, well, the past decades, uh, we made a move to uh, mechanical ventilation. Um, but uh, it, budgets are very low for uh, building schools in the Netherlands. And uh, it, it, they, it, there was no, um, uh, it, it, we were not used to build mechanical ventilations at low costs. Uh, and that, yeah, 
uh, it, 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 we it, it, it showed um, that uh, we have problematic results with that. Fortunately, um, since uh, the last about 10 years, um, we have more focus on the uh, on ventilation, the, uh, the need for good ventilation in schools. And uh, I think at the moment, uh, this 80% is not actual anymore. Uh, it's, it's going down quickly. Uh, but I think 60-70% of the schools is still uh, not good enough. Yeah, that's, that's a high number. I mean, yeah, that's saying that sixty or seventy percent of all your students potentially, right, in are are not really experiencing a good environmental quality uh, for learning. Yeah, that's a sad reality. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's tr it's true here in the United States as well. And Don, I'm I'm anticipating in Canada probably not that dissimilar. Well, no, it's very similar actually, and and the problems in the schools now in Canada is that many of them you know, are, are as much as a century old. Uh, and so putting any type of ventilation other than natural ventilation is, is really difficult in these older schools. So it's very similar problems that we have, probably again, worldwide. So one last question. Uh, I was wondering, you had, you, uh, I understand that you're the author of the Dutch guidelines for IEQ in schools. Could you tell us a little bit about those, those guidelines? Yeah, uh, about, 15 years ago, I think, uh, we started to have the discussion in the Netherlands about the indoor air quality in schools. And uh, we uh, began to notice that uh, the situation was very poor in our buildings and we should change that. And at the same time, um, there was a discussion starting on uh, sustainability and energy use in schools. And uh, of course, uh, saving energy, it saves money and it's really attractive for schools to, to save money. Um, but uh, at the same time, you want to improve the ventilation, uh, improve the indoor air quality. And uh, uh, of course, if you want to, to have more ventilation, it costs energy. Um, so uh, combining both, um, the, the Dutch government said we, we should make guidelines uh, to help schools to uh, save both energy and improve ventilation. And uh, we should make guidelines for schools and help them to improve the, the quality of the building. And uh, back in 2008, I think we had the first version of these guidelines and uh, it became uh, really successful. Actually, at the moment, uh, no school in the Netherlands uh, is built without using these guidelines. Mm. And um, the, the government, local governments, actually often give uh, extra budgets for building your schools if you build it according to these guidelines at a certain level. So actually, we are quite successful with these guidelines. And um, this week, we uh, actually launched, uh, it's the sixth version, I think, uh, version 2021. So we are uh, glad to promote that as well. Right, and I imagine that they're available somewhere on your website uh, or some other website that we could, anybody who wants to get, find those could find those? Yeah, I will uh, put it in the chat. Uh, Perfect, and, uh, we'll, get, we'll get it on the show notes. Uh, yeah. That'll be attached to everything. Yeah. All right. 
Right. Thank you very much. You Great interview. <laughs> so uh, before we uh, uh, bring Powell back in, uh, I just wanted to uh, take a moment and uh, mention an upcoming event uh, this fall that will, uh, you know, be focused on, you know, bridging this gap that we're trying to do here, uh, bringing the academic research side to the practitioner side. And this is the Healthy Buildings America 2021 event. It's being held in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9th through 11th. Uh, this is going to be an in-person event. Uh, it'll, uh, it is, uh, of course, being sponsored by ISEAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And it's being hosted by Siri, the uh, Cleaning Industry Research uh, Institute. Um, so this this is an event. Uh, we'll be there, right, Don? You're planning on being there. I'll be there. Um, yeah. So th so this this is an event that we uh, highly recommend you uh, check out. This is a, a absolutely a one of a kind type thing. So so at this point, uh, we're going to bring Powell back in. There he is. And uh, we're, we'll continue this discussion. I mean, this is actually fascinating. I, I have to say, uh, let me just frame this, coming again with uh, a North American and predominantly United States perspective on things. Um, I thought a lot of the issues that we had here were more unique to us than uh, in Europe and, and a lot of other areas. Um, and I'm beginning to see that's maybe not the case. <laughs> this, this is more of a systemic uh, thing throughout schools uh, throughout the world. Uh, yeah. So, Pal, I mean, your research has been uh, focused uh, beyond the Denmark and Scandinavian countries. Uh, you mentioned we talked a little bit about subtropical and tropical. Do you see differences between, say, for example, what is going on in Europe and, say, for example, what's going on in North America? I know you do. You have correspondence back and forth. So what's what's your what's your thoughts about uh, the differences and the similarities between the two uh, two places? Well, um to be honest, I don't know much about those similarities and differences. What I can say about Denmark or our and initiatives here is that um, it seems like uh, indoor climate in schools is back on track here. So after years of discussions and so on, there has been some significant um, investments that are made by local municipalities in uh, solutions for improving indoor environments. So, and probably to which extent they are, of course, you know, uh, emphasized by the current pandemic, it's difficult to say, but they have been in plans for years. And Fraukia is right. I mean, for years we have been, and I think this is, this is the similarity between different countries. We, we've been looking for the savings, you know, and uh, where to find best saving is just, you know, the let's not upgrade schools. I mean, uh, children will anyway treat it as a part of education to be in the poor environment, right? Uh, you can say that. So um, that is probably the, the biggest uh, overlook that we had. Uh, over over the years, and now we see the consequences of that. Right, uh, we uh, during the current pandemic, the schools could not be open because they did not have systems or technical solutions that would allow them to open and keep children going to school. So um, that was an, a significant overlook, and I hope it will be changed uh, in the future. Mm. So that's my comment on that uh, question. Uh, would you like to add anything, Fraukia, in terms of what you're seeing in your schools in uh, the Netherlands and other part places, perhaps in uh, Europe or in the United in the uh, North America? 
Well, at least in, in the Netherlands, we see that, uh, like in Denmark, uh, we are expecting big improvements or at, at least uh, investments in uh, the school environments. Um, due to the pandemic, uh, last September, uh, a huge measurement campaign started in the Netherlands. Within four weeks' time, uh, the government uh, started to measure the indoor air quality in schools. It was 30 degrees outside that period. So it's not uh, probably not the best results or the, the most reliable results. Uh, but after this measurement campaign, um, they, uh, they revealed um, a subsidy campaign. Uh, and now uh, schools uh, can have subsidy to uh, improve the building due to this, uh, due to the pandemic, actually. Were they, but it was, it was necessary anyhow. It, it's unfortunate, though, that, that it took a global pandemic to actually uh, create an impetus of some sort of motivation to actually improve uh, the air quality in our schools. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not a great commentary on where our priorities are. Um, I mean, do you really do you, do you both believe that going forward, you know, as a result of the pandemic and as a result of the uh, probably renewed interest in air quality and ventilation, especially in, in uh, school buildings. Do, do, you, do you see this going forward or is this gonna be like a, a one-off type thing where there's some funding now because we're still in crisis? Or is this, do you think this is actually gonna be a paradigm shift going forward? Well, we do hope for the paradigm shift. Yeah. And um, as you know, in uh, on May 13, I think on May 14, the uh, the article was published in the Science, uh, where uh, you know 36 um, researchers, you know, uh, ask for the paradigm or request the paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift in our thinking about indoor environment is that the health should be one of the important parameters. That I mean, indoor air quality should, you know ensure that uh, the environment is healthy and that uh, infection control and uh, quality of the air considering infection should be considered. I think the most important thing here at the moment is for the authorities to take an action on that and ensure that you know those requirements are in the uh, regulations, building codes uh, or building regulations, standards and the guidelines. If you, for example, if you look at the WHO air quality guidelines, they do not mention infection control, right? And uh, the list of pollutants is only like 12 indoor, uh, indoor air relevant, relevant pollutants, including also several uh, uh, from outside and maybe 15, 16 pollutants. I think we should at least start to so, uh, uh, and comply with those uh, recommendations. And of course, make sure that the indoor air quality uh, <clears throat> contain the aspect of health and not only comfort in the requirements and infection control. The, uh, the other important issue is the um, accountability here, I think. what uh, When I was uh, looking at uh, Frauke's um, presentation and uh, uh, pictures and you were asking about uh, oh I mean the the, the ducks are dirty and uh, we thought that it is only a, a, a U.S. phenomenon and it's I mean it's phenomenon everywhere because there are no proper regulation for servicing of the systems and ensuring that they are working as they are designed. Uh, there are only few in the world. I mean uh, th there is one uh, in Sweden where they have a 
regular maintenance uh, checks of the ventilation systems. This kind of uh, changes are necessary uh, for the future to for the success. Um, but I, as I said, um, I think one of the important things is that the authorities should really, you know, take the difficult decision. You know, in, in Europe, when in Europe, uh, what is it? What was about ten years ago? The decision was made to stop, you know, to uh, to ban smoking, you know, in public buildings, and we see now the effects of that. I mean, there are significant positive effects of that. I mean. We have to make this decision. Someone has to have a courage to do that. So uh, I was going to ask Prakya uh, about these measurements that you mentioned that took place last September. What what were they measuring? What 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 were the parameters that they were measuring, and 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 how were they selected? Um, they were mainly uh, CO two measurements, and it was a kind of do it yourself um, uh, method. Um, because all in Holland we have about 7,000 uh, school buildings for primary and secondary education. Um, we do not have enough engineers uh, to measure all those buildings within one or two weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's why um, schools were uh, encouraged to measure their own buildings and uh, using um, co consumer equipment. Uh, like those traffic light uh, CO2 meters um, in order to, to uh, get the results of their, or, or get at least um, a, a random sample within their classrooms. Uh, and what was the guideline that they were using for, say, carbon dioxide? What, what level was considered to be acceptable and what was not? Um, they used several guidelines, actually, uh, 1200 ppm okay. as a lowest value, and uh, which is actually, that gave some discussion, 1200 ppm is actually above uh, the Dutch uh, guideline, or the Dutch, um, uh, the Dutch guidelines in schools. Uh, I think if you followed um, the guidelines for, uh, Older buildings, older school buildings, uh, you will have uh, CO2 concentrations about 1800 ppm. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 1200 for these older buildings was set as a guideline. Um, for newer buildings, it's uh, 950 ppm. Okay, and and were they selected by a group, uh, or how how were they how how did they evolve to those numbers? um based on the guidelines we wrote actually ah okay so you it's it's all your fault that they don't make it <laughs> <laughs> so Car discussing guidelines. <laughs> that's right uh, um Pal, I, you you have been involved in in the ehc committee and and under uh from ashray you you know the discussion about carbon dioxide uh what are your thoughts on on this in terms of measurements and what type of guidelines well, I need to introduce my plenary talk for for Healthy Buildings Europe, you know, uh, in Oslo that I gave last week. I think it will be available online uh, for those who will register, maybe at the lower cost uh, than the full registration. Nevertheless, uh, I, I was talking about the CO2, about it, uh, how it is used, in which context it is used. 
Well, my opinion about CO2, it's a crude measure. And uh, uh, it's crude measure that we have to use properly if we want to use it. Uh, and so it gives us some proper indication. However, we have not yet developed another indicator. Uh, and there is not, not much you know, to select among, uh, if you want to demonstrate whether your environment is, uh, you know, whether your ventilation is working properly and are there any risks and so on. It seems to me that that is probably the only parameter at the moment, which is uh, for which we have an experience, for which we have sensors and uh, which we can monitor. However, there, there are several issues that are associated with it and um, in different contexts. Uh, in the context of uh, measurements of ventilation, you know, proper location of the um, CO2 sensor and CO2 sensor in itself, proper calibration and, and so on and so on. These are uh, the, the, the elements of the, uh, of the actual uh, pre precise measurement. But, <clears throat> but CO2, indicator or co2 may not be a very good indicator if you for example use air cleaning systems right so that is the issue i mean now when we speak about the covid 19 pandemic and when we use um air cleaners uh hepa air cleaners uh, we will uh, remove the uh, infectious pathogens or pathogens from the air but co2 will remain unchanged so co2 will not be a good indicator in this context for example in large areas, in large volumes, also will not be a good indicator, and so on. CO2 may not be very well related also to our respiratory activity. We don't know that. This is something that we also need to <clears throat> study more. But as I said, we should not condemn CO2 because at the, at the moment we don't have an alternative. And so let's use this um, measurement uh, as a uh, properly and provide the good guidelines for the people how to use it because we just believe okay we can deploy some sensors and everything will be fine mm -hmm. and there are no guidelines for that for the numbers for the numbers if i just say something you know there is this important issue is this 1000 ppm of petankov uh, this is like an in, um, indicative of whether environment is good or not good or air quality is good or not good so it seems like it, it it is somewhere there. I mean, maybe there's 800 or maybe maybe 900. Um, and also we need to start thinking about um, the um, CO2 above outdoor because outdoor um, levels of CO2 are uh, increasing. Interestingly, when Petankofer proposed seven, uh, 1000 ppm, he assumed outdoor level of 500 ppm. So actually he was uh, saying 500 above the uh, outdoor level, which today with the 400 outside, maybe sometimes more than 400, would result in about 900 ppm, right? Indoors, which, uh, which is probably the levels that, for example, we for schools, we say that, you know, the levels about around 900 and below, they would, you know, they would provide the conditions uh, which will which will not disturb the uh, learning with respect to air quality Be why 900 because we don't have you know the, the, the school air quality is not better than this level so ventilation so we don't have data for you know lower levels maybe there are still effects uh, below 900 ppm so 
1,000 seems to be 900, 1,000. Uh, Fraukio is saying 950, right? Um, seems to be um, somewhere a ballpark, you know, um, indicator for a, uh, for indoor quality level and ventilation. However, again, we need to develop a proper guideline for the people. It's it's not like you know you plug in this thing. It's mm -hmm. much more complicated. Well, what's interesting too is because there are two discrete different concepts here, right? Using CO2 as an indicator is dealing mainly with gaseous contaminants, right? And off-gassing right. and that sort of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, specifically with the pandemic, we're, we're doing, you know, with an aerosol, aerosolized uh, pathogen, we're doing particulate removal. So, right. so we can do all the HEPA scrubbing in the world inside of a classroom, but we're not going to improve the, the indoor gaseous concentrations in there with those HEPA units unless there's some activated carbon or some other sorbent there. So I, I think it's more complex than some people realize. But, but even if you think about, you know, climate change and, um, you know, uh, a need to reduce energy use and use of the ga gas phaser cleaning, you know, systems, uh, which may become popular and particularly in some locations, you know, it will be much easier to maybe deploy the uh, ga gas phaser cleaners than, uh, you know, increased ventilation. Then we have the same problem because they would not remove CO2 from the um, from the environment so we need to somehow connect their operation with the uh, some sort of a co2 equivalent change or something like that i would call it co2 credit and i call it like this co2 credit and of course co2 should be supplemented with other pollutants i mean you know co2 would not correlate with the ambient pollution level so your co2 will drop but your ambient pollution levels indoors will increase, you know, so you increase, improve ventilation in the areas where the PM levels are very high. Maybe ozone is high outside, and so you all of it you bring inside, but CO2 will not indicate that. So this is something that we need to supplement uh, the sensor uh, with. So, Frakia, yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, what, what, what did they do with this, these, these schools with the subsidies they got uh once they were you know did their their self-checking in terms of the co2 what, what kind of what were they doing with the subs were they doing new better ventilation were they doing something other than that what what what, what did they use the money for um i think mainly ventilation improving the ventilation system but they can also use it for uh improving uh overall sustainability so uh lower energy use Okay, so lower energy use, but would that necessarily result in lower levels of carbon dioxide levels in the, in the, in the classrooms? Nope. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, reducing uh, of, uh, CO2 levels or uh, improving ventilation rates is one of the, the main um, things you should do. Uh, it's it's uh, how to say it. Well, if you don't improve the ventilation in your school uh, and if you do not monitor CO2 levels afterwards, you won't get the money. Right. Well, in some cases, if they're using it for energy uh, reductions, it may not be a good use for that, that subsidy at this point if they're really trying to improve indoor air quality. But uh, that's true all over. I mean, it's not, not necessarily just true in, in the Netherlands, in the United States and in Canada. We have the same situation where people are talking about uh, you know, sustainability and resilience. And so in many cases, it goes, where does it go? It goes to improving the ventilation in some cases, but a lot of energy savings in a lot of other cases. So the same type of problems exist here 
in North America as they seem to exist in Europe. So, uh, Bob, any other questions? No, uh, I mean, I think the, my big concern again is that, and I've, I've voiced this on so many different programs, um, you know, that we have this, I think a unique opportunity right now in the world, um, you know, coming off or still, you know, I, I shouldn't say coming off because I'm speaking in terms of the United States now, but for, let's say getting toward the waning, hopefully, uh, time for this pandemic, there, there's, uh, it's just an elevated uh, awareness, not not just among the indoor environmental community in schools, but just the general public, right? About indoor indoor air quality, indoor environmental concerns. Um, everybody's highly focused on that more than I've ever seen in my lifetime for the general public. And, and this is a unique opportunity for us in in the industry, you know, both both on the research side and in the practitioner side to uh, drive this point home and maybe drive, you know, drive some new initiatives and maybe have a paradigm shift in the industry. My mm -hmm. concern is, is that, will we do that? <laughs> you know, will we take this, will we seize this moment that we have right now where there, you know, potentially is funding and there potentially is interest to do that? And, uh, and if so, how do we do that? Yeah, how do we, that's, we a, that's a loaded measure. question, I know. And how do we, how do we measure if it's successful or not? So it's difficult. Pal, I have to ask you because uh, it just struck me that uh, you have some recent studies that I've seen concerning bedroom ventilation. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and I was wondering since that's more of an uh, indoor air quality for not only for, for uh, adults, but for kids as well. Perhaps you could describe a little bit what you're doing in terms of this, uh, this, this area of expertise. Sure. Um, um, yeah, uh, I'll be happy to. But just to uh, um, uh, to to address what Bob was saying is, I think there are two possible uh, pathways here, and one is, as I said, is authority that taking step, you know, forward and just saying, okay, it's it's been enough. We have to do something about it. And then, of course, the uh, an, an interest, general interest, so the from bottom up, you know, that the interest to to, to make the change. I don't know whether there is a strong push in this direction there. I think it's important is that, you know, the paradigm shift is also, you know, in how we think about our buildings, how flexible and resilient they should be for the possible different events that we have, may have in the future. And uh, this pandemic actually clearly shows, and also other events, you know, the fires, wildfires mm -hmm. in California show, how they are, uh, you know, unprepared to the uh, this kind of events. Of events. But, uh, <clears throat> Let's hope for the best, I think, Bob. And then for the sleep, um, right? I mean, if I say, um, first I will say about Petankofer again. So he said that <laughs> 1,000 ppm in all other spaces except bedrooms. In bedrooms, 700 ppm, because the air quality should be much better in bedrooms than in um, in other environments. And uh, and this is what we try to do is now we try to figure out how indoor air quality in our bedrooms uh, uh affects our sleep quality and if so what should be the uh, prescript prescribed uh, ventilation requirements or other measures taken to improve the indoor air quality in bedroom i just tell you a few words about sleep we spent we sleep about more than 20 years uh, in our life you know it is a significant part of our life where we spend in one environment this is fairly static environment because we sleep uh, so we can document what are the exposures that we have there. And we have docu documentation that poor sleep quality affects several aspects of health. 
including you know there is a connection to obesity to parkinson disease and other aspects poor sleep quality affects next day performance i mean they compare poor sleep quality with few drinks taken in the evening and driving a car you know after that you would probably without good sleep you will you will be as risky on the road uh, or as dangerous on the road as after having a few drinks uh, in the evening in the bar and driving home so this is a very important environment we understand now how temperature is affecting this but um, with the new method methods to measure sleep quality with uh, you know sleep trackers that can monitor our sleep uh, quality basically online 24 7 without a need for the uh, going to the specially prepared uh, sleeping labs we will be able to monitor how people sleep in different conditions so this is what we do mm, uh, we have completed uh, Mm, we, we make measurements both in Denmark, which is a temperate climate, and in uh, China, which is in the subtropical part of the, uh, where, where there is a subtropical climate in China, in Shanghai, just to compare the differences uh, in, um, first of all, building culture, and also that uh, the, the, the climate. And we look at, uh, we we measure the conditions in bedrooms in actual bedrooms and then uh, we plan now for the studies where we actually make interventions in bedrooms and see whether they would be uh, having any effect on the sleep quality our aim is to provide some guideline value where we should be with the ventilation with all the published data we published a paper recently in Astra journal on that aspect um, with the published data that uh, is in the literature is very limited, but it seems like the 700 or 800 ppm of CO2 that was recommended by uh, Pettenkofer, and again, we are talking very close to 1000 ppm, you can see for the CO2, because we have data for measurements of CO2. This is the way how we measure the, the air quality as an indicator. It seems like this is the level where we, which we should aim at in our bedroom. So for those who are watching us, I mean, make sure that your bedroom is properly ventilated when you sleep tonight and it will guarantee you good sleep. And, and we'll be very much more uh, productive tomorrow morning, too. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> oh, but, but that is, you know, you point out a great uh, problem there, Powell, because most people or many people sleep with their bedroom door closed and many home residences are designed with their without true return ventilation on their system. So it's it's designed to go through the doorway. So you've cut off most of the ventilation by closing the door, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Moisture increases, temperature increases, you know, air quality is reduced. And then uh, you wake up, you have, you know, you may, you may not have the proper lengths of all the stages in the sleep. You wake up and you don't even know that you wake up during the sleep because you have to turn back and forth because, you know, the conditions are not, uh helping you to sleep so it's 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 an important problem right yeah. and uh, to get adding on top of all the stress that we have uh, from the outside environment and life changes in life right which already reduces our sleep lengths then this will further you know, in, introduce the disturbance to sleep so at least this we can we can control this at least and for children if they don't get proper sleep They'll end up sleeping in the classrooms, which is what this is all about today. Right, right, right. And yeah, first of all, the yeah. children with asthma and allergy, they, they, they pro 
improperly ventilated bedrooms this is you know our group showed that that, that they would exacerbate their problems mm -hmm. and that would also not only affect their health but also affect their sleep quality mm -hmm. Well, Bob, I think we've come to the end of the program. We've we've gotten to that time. I guess what we'd like to, I'd like to do is give you both an opportunity, both of our guests, just to just give a brief final statement, uh, final point you want to make, uh, or something you didn't get to state. Um, I'm going to reach the Fraukia first. Uh, um, closing thoughts. Yeah, I would like to encourage everyone not to wait for more scientific knowledge. We know uh, a lot already. We don't know everything, but. Uh, Use everything in practice, use your senses and uh, improve all those school buildings. What an incredible punchline. I think uh, we, of course, as a researchers, we would like to learn more and more and more and more, but there is sufficient information for the practice to act on it. And, uh, you know, uh, Professor Fango was always saying that the uh, Wright brothers, they did not know all the, you know, all the equations and you know relationships uh, and uh, everything related to aerodynamics but they could fly i think we can also fly uh, here by changing our indoor environment with the evidence that we have so far of course we will be developing it further to improve the solutions but we can already now with the evidence that we have as frauke was saying righteously that you know we can we can make a huge change to uh, how the indoor environments are are created and uh, uh, for the benefit of all of us, not only children that we speak today, but also for elderly and us, you know, sitting here. Thank you, Frauke, for making this line. Well, Frauke well, Vendeichkin, uh, uh, Paul uh, Wargaki, um, you know, thank you so very much for joining us and taking time out of uh, your evenings, I guess, right? We're, we're, both of you are at the, the waning parts of your day. We're just right, beginning here. <laughs> Thank you, but it's a long days we have because uh, it's June and we have long days. I mean, so it's just the beginning. <laughs> well, yes. Thank you for, uh, to both of you, and uh, we will certainly uh, uh, take the thoughts that you had. Uh, you can never go wrong, pal, when you quote uh, Professor uh, Thanger. It's, it's one of the last statements. He was no, one I mean, of my. I just give an example because it was excellent analogy. I mean. Yeah, sure. it was, and, and and he's unfortunately no longer with us, but. Uh, his thoughts are still, uh, you know, influencing a generation after generation of people who are involved in this yeah. field. So thank you very much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks thank for the you. invitation. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah. So Don, so we're, we are at that time. We've gotten through episode number one, which is, uh, been great yes. this, this has been a, this has really been a great conversation i was you know came came into this going not 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 100 sure exactly where it go but i think it was fantastic yeah. um before before we leave want to definitely put a reminder out there again for isiac's healthy buildings america 2021 that's happening this november 9 through 11 uh in honolulu hawaii and the focus of this is bridging the gap between research and practice and the intent here beyond or behind the organ organizers plans is to bring practitioners and researchers together at an, an event where they can interact and uh, share experience and information. Uh, this event again is being hosted by Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll all be there, right? You'll be there, right? I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be there. I'm, I'm planning on it. So um, I guess without further ado, we'll say uh, everyone, thank you so very much for watching the show. Um, again, this was a uh, joint production of ISIAC and IEQGA. And we'll be back again 
in uh, July with our next guest. Uh, one of our guests, at least, will be Dr. David Krause. Um, I believe he'll probably be speaking at least a bit about Legionella. Uh -huh. It's kind of his ballywick, uh, but um, stay tuned. We'll be here every month. The show, uh, again, replays of the show are available at the uh, Healthy Indoors Online Global Community. You can watch it anytime. It's free to the general public. And by all means, uh, join the community and comment there. We we'd love to see what your comments of this initial episode are. So, Don? Uh, yes, thank you, Bob, for, uh, for for helping to put this all together. It, I certainly would not know what to do in terms of uh, what we've done in terms of the production value. And I really appreciate what you and Sue, Susan have done, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next show. Excellent. Well, we'll see you all uh, in July for the uh, next episode of Indoor Environments, Global Research to Practice. Until that time, I'm Bob Krell, and uh, for Don Weeks, we'll see you soon.